Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Emma, and I've loved being part of this church family for many years. We're going to read uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 12, and we'll carry on to chapter 3 and verse 5. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent's by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Asahel, Stop chasing me. What, why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Amar near Gaia on the way, on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realise that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their brothers? Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued the pursuit of their brothers until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. All that night, Abner and his men marched through Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the whole Bithron and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab returned from pursuing Abner and assembled all his men. Besides Asahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. 
but David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithriam, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Well, thank you very much, Emma, for that reading. Uh, thank you for helping us with all those names. As we head into this part of the, section, the, uh, the book, you're going to see lots and lots of names beginning with A, particularly, uh, people and places, and we're going to have to get used to them. Uh, well, thank you, Emma, for that, and thank you, Nathan, for your welcome. Let me add my welcome uh, to those uh, viewing at home and to the handful of uh, people here in the chapel who are making this uh, possible. And as Nathan said, it would be very helpful if you could have that passage open in front of you. We're going to be working through it in some detail. And if you haven't downloaded the outline, uh, have a uh, go at finding it, and uh, hopefully that will help us too. Well, let me uh, pray very briefly uh, before we dive into this part of God's Word. Father, as we've already prayed, we give you thanks that you have spoken to us in your Word. <clears throat> we thank you that your Word helps us to see the world rightly and to see ourselves rightly, and most of all, to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, our true King and Saviour, who will, in time, make this world the place you always intended it to be, and make us the people you created us to be. Please help us now to enlarge our view of him, and to put our trust in him as we read your word. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, whatever else has been happening in the last week, since we were here in the book of 2 Samuel, it's been a good week, hasn't it, to reflect on the limitations of human leadership. Let me give you three uh, fairly obvious examples. Uh, first, you will have not missed the fact that our friends across the pond have been having an election that's been described as the most bitter and divisive election in American history. And whatever you think of the individual candidates, whatever your own political sympathies, one can't help feeling that the American people have been choosing between the lesser of two evils. We may wonder why such a great nation cannot produce some better quality candidates. Uh, maybe somebody like Jed Bartlett in The West Wing, if you're familiar with that TV series from uh, the early 20s. But of course, the problem with The West Wing and the problem with Jed Bartlett is he's too good to be true. It is a work of fiction. Donald Trump might wish to make America great again. Joe Biden might claim that he can heal America. 
But in reality, neither men will live up to those expectations or the expectations of the 70 million or so people who voted for them. As our own Winston Churchill said, every political career ends in failure. Secondly, we've been reminded this week of the hard decisions that our own political leaders have to make all the time. At the moment, they're trying to contain the coronavirus, and every decision they make is open to the accusation of being too strong or too weak, depending on at which side of the fence you're on. Many hundreds of church leaders, myself included, signed a letter this week pleading with Boris not to close churches, but he did close them, something we believe is an error of judgment, but which we'll submit to. The point is, everybody has an opinion, and no one believes that they're getting it right all the time. The third reminder of the limitations of human leadership is Remembrance Sunday. This helps us to keep in mind, as we just have done, one of the great conflicts of human history. But it also reminds us, doesn't it, that these events are typical of human history. That the whole of human history is actually a story of conflict and violence. It's a story of the sword devouring, as we'll see later. And democracy is not a solution to this. And no human leader has ever succeeded in bringing real peace to our world. So three reminders that we've had in the past week of the limitations of human leadership. Why is human leadership so limited? Why does it always fail in what it sets out to achieve? Why does it fail to fix the world? Why does no human leader live up to expectations? Well, it's important to be clear that it's not because leadership or authority in and of themselves are evil. Bible-believing Christians must not make the mistake of thinking, as is often said, that power itself corrupts and all leadership and authority and power is inherently wrong. On the contrary, the Bible teaches us that secular leaders, even really bad secular leaders, are actually given their authority by God for the good of human society. We taught this in Romans 13, for example. The Bible encourages us to respect our leaders, to thank God for them, to submit to them and pray for them, as we just have done. And the same is true for church leaders in Hebrews 13, for example. So we need to be very clear as Christians that it's not that power and authority in and of themselves are wrong or inherently evil. That's anarchy. The problem is that human leaders are human. And that means they are never completely good. They are never completely pure or selfless in their motives. They are never completely wise or just in their decisions. At their worst, they are despotic, ruthless, and deadly. But at their best, they have mixed motives and sometimes make foolish mistakes. And understanding this is more important than we may at first think. Now, why do I begin by talking about the limitations of human leadership? Well, I begin there because the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is really the story of Israel's search for a leader. It's a long and complex and sometimes very exciting story. And it fits into the bigger story the Bible tells, which is also the world's search for a leader. 
If you want to boil down the story of the Bible, really it's the story of the kingdom of God. It's the story of how the rule, the power, the authority, the kingdom of God will come to take over God's world. In a sense, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are answering a big fundamental question that I think concerns us all. Who will lead us? Who will make not America great again, but who will make God's creation great again? Who can really heal the world? Well, let me very quickly show you the answer we are given in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. We're given the answers at the beginning and end of these two books, which we must keep remembering are one story in two parts. The whole of 1 and 2 Samuel is framed by this leadership question. Let me show you. It's very exciting and I think encouraging. Let's begin at the end. David's final words, which we're learning as a church in 23, 3 to 4, as Nathan already reminded us, give us a, a tantalizing vision of a perfect world brought about by a perfect leader. I won't attempt to do the body percussion, but when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Almost David's last words in the book. But now remember how it all began. Right back at the beginning, before David was even a twinkle in his father's eye, a young woman who herself had been waiting a long time for a son to be born, prophetically warns us that we must look out for the right kind of leader. 1 Samuel 2, 9 and 10 in the Song of Hannah. It is not by strength that one prevails. The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So there is the framework of the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. A vision of a perfect world, but a warning not to look for that world through human leadership and through the usual methods of strength and might, but to look instead for one who is coming, who will rule differently, for the one that God himself will raise up, for the one called God's anointed, God's Christ. And I think the purpose of our passage this morning is to check whether or not we really believe this. And it does that in the context of a cracking story, which we'll look at under three headings, the fight, the chase, and the question. Let's start with, then with the fight in chapter 2, 12 to 17. If you've got your Bibles open, just glance back to the previous couple of verses, 8 to 11, which summarizes the situation leading into this next section. And if you hear last week, you may remember that the complication has now got a little bit complicated. The situation has now got a little bit complicated because there are two kings in Israel. David has been anointed in Hebron by the people of Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. And Abner, Saul's commander, has made Saul's surviving son, Ishbosheth, king over the other tribes of Israel. So we have a complication on the way to David's throne. We have two kings in one nation. And clearly, this can only be resolved one way, and that is by conflict. So pick up the story in verse 12. 
Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. The attempt to settle the conflict actually doesn't involve either king. But the action on this particular day centers around their two generals who are both introduced here. We have Abner in one corner and Joab in the other. What do we learn about these two men? Well, we know quite a lot about these two men from other parts of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And I said last week to kind of imagine them as your typical gung-ho, khaki-wearing, muscular men of violence. These are war-hardened fighting men, military veterans, both fiercely loyal to their masters. They are men whose instinct is to resolve conflict through violence. That is what they're trained to do. And this is what seems to happen now, verse 14. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off 12 men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Now what seems to be happening here is what historians call representative combat. The idea is that in order to avoid a massive loss of life, a small select number of soldiers were chosen to fight it out in a kind of winner-takes-all situation. You may remember a particularly famous example of this earlier in the story is, of course, David's fight with Goliath, a one-to-one example of representative combat in which each side puts forward one fighting man to kind of sort out the military standoff. So that's what seems to be going on here at one level. But I think if we dig a little bit deeper, there's a little bit more going on here as well. And I think what the narrator wants to see is the tragedy of the situation that has come about in Israel. That Israel is a divided nation when she should be united. Before these men brutally slaughter each other, there is this rather poignant emphasis on their unity. Let me just show you a couple of details. There are more, but in the time, just look at a couple. Firstly, notice the setting. The two men meet on either side of a pool of water. This pool was discovered by archaeologists in the 1950s. It's a large reservoir, part of a kind of a water system. And so if you can picture the scene, it's it's a scene of tranquility, isn't it? The language in the original emphasizes this word met is actually two words in the Hebrew, met together, a word that we'll see in a moment repeated. And that phrase met together is not normally used in the context of military confrontations, but happy social and religious contexts. And so the narrator is gently reminding us that these two sides belong to the same nation. The setting, if you can picture it, looks more like a church picnic than the beginning of a battle. The second clue, which you can only see if you have different version of the Bible to one most of us are reading, is that the word opponent is actually the word friend or fellow. And the King James Version actually translates it like this. And Abner's suggestion might have been a kind of a, an invitation to a, a kind of a jousting tournament. 
Finally, notice that for each side, 12 men were counted out. 12 men, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So 24 men suggesting a level of disunity in a nation that should be united. So picture this little scene then with me. And at one level, up to verse 15, we have a dangerous military confrontation. There is no doubt a lot of tension in the air as these two generals meet on behalf of their two kings. But what the narrator wants us to see, as we pay attention to the details that he's given us, and what he wants us to keep in mind throughout the passage that follows, is that these men are brothers, a phrase that Abner himself will remind us before the day is out. Well, that observation makes what happens next all the more tragic. Verse 16. Then each man grabbed his opponent, or his friend, as the King James puts it, by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim, which may mean something like field of flint daggers. Well, whether this was a jousting tournament in its original intention or a representative combat, it didn't contain the hostility. All the tension that was no doubt in the air between these two sides and their generals now erupts into this gladiatorial fight to the death. And notice how the narrator continues to underline the tragedy of this by repeating that word together in verse 16. They met together, now they fall together. Well, not surprisingly, the hostility then spreads to the rest of the army and leads to a conflict that lasts the entire day. We're not given the details of the battle, either apart from at the beginning and the end. At the beginning, in verse 17, we're given a brief summary of the outcome. And at the end of the day, verse 30 to 31, we hear the final body count, 19 to Abner, 360 to David. In other words, what this brutal little scene does is function as a kind of an acted parable for the deeper problem in Israel. Just as at the time of the judges and at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the 12 tribes, God's people, are led by men of violence. Brutality rules. The people of God are hopelessly divided. And there is no prince of peace to gather God's people together. There is no one ruling in righteousness like the light of morning at sunrise. Abner and Joab and men like them only seem to understand the language of strength and might because they have not listened to and taken to heart Hannah's song. Israel needs the king that God will appoint. Well, the fight now leads to a chase in 2.18 to 23. The narrator gives us the big picture summary of that day in verse 17 and at the end of the chapter. But in between, he now zooms in as the masterful storyteller that he is on one incident, and we get to follow a piece of action from the beginning to the bitter end. We're now introduced to three tough guy brothers. These three men are important in the book of 2 Samuel, as we'll see. But now we're given one particular detail about one of them, that he is fast. Verse 18. 
The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Again, we can easily picture these men, can't we? If they were part of a rugby team, I think Joab and Abishai would be the front row props. They'd be big, beefy men, no discernible necks, that kind of person. But their brother Asahel is the fly half. He uses his speed to chase people, and he now chases the commander of the other side. So what do we have here in this slightly strange little chase scene? Well, we have a repetition of the gladiator scene in verse 24. But now it's being acted out between two men, not in terms of strength, but in terms of speed. And it's quite a chase through the foothills and valleys of Gibeon. It's in the chase that we begin to get a bit more of a glimpse of this Abner person, that he is actually a little bit more than just brawn and strength. There's a dialogue that happens that we are to pay attention to. Notice that Abner tries to persuade Asahel to give up the chase. Why does he do that? Not because he's frightened for his life, but because he knows if he doesn't give up, he will have to kill the young man himself, which he can easily do. But he doesn't want to. And the reason he doesn't want to is given to us in verse 22. Again, Abner warned Asahel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? Abner is not concerned so much about Asahel, but about his brother Joab and the consequences for any future negotiations. But the young man will not listen, a decision that now costs him his life. Verse 23, but Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. I hope not many of you are tucking into your breakfast right now as you read that. It's an old soldier's trick, apparently. It's there in the infantry manual, I'm sure. When being chased from behind, stop suddenly and jab your spear into the belly of the other guy, using his momentum as extra force. There you go. If you take away nothing else from this morning, there's a tip if you're ever in that situation. And I think we're to notice at this point, the narrator's sympathy lies with Abner. He warned the young man twice, and then he did what he said he would do. What other choice did he have? But the result is momentous. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. It seems that David's men are following on, and now they come to this gruesome sight what do they see? This strong man, a fast man, a fighting man, now lying dead with the spear of Saul's old general poking through him. It's a sobering sight, isn't it? It's a momentous event that now shifts the conflict to the next level. And as we'll see in a moment, actually has repercussions for many, many years to come. And in the meantime, David's throne, humanly speaking, is in balance again, hangs in the balance. 
We know from verse 17 that his side won the battle, but we don't yet know who wins the war. More importantly, at this moment, as the men pause looking at Asahel, we should be asking the question, is there anybody in Israel who believes Hannah's prophecy? Is there anybody who believes that it's not by strength that one prevails? David's men, if you glance down to verse 32, will arrive back at Hebron by daybreak. As the sun is rising, they get home safely. But will that usher in a bright morning of righteous rule and peace and rest, as we read in 2 Samuel 23? Will God's people ever be united? Will peace come to our world? Well, it's to that question, the question of the future, that the narrative now turns. There's a lot of detail here, but let me very briefly sum up the action of the rest of that day. Leaving the rest of the men in stunned silence, Asahel's two brothers, Joab and Abishai, go off in pursuit of his killer, verse 24. And the pursuit continues until the end of the day. And can you see that the two parties kind of end up on two hills facing each other? Notice how this day ends, mirrors the way it began. The day began with Abner setting down this challenge to Joab. And it now ends with Abner and Joab facing each other, not across the pond, but across two hills. And this time, Abner offering a truce to Joab. Joab agrees. He blows the trumpet. Everybody packs up. And the fighting is over for the day. But you may remember, notice that in verse 27, Joab doesn't answer Abner's questions. And so Abner's questions in verse 26 are left hanging. They're left hanging over the narrative. And in fact, these questions are left hanging over David's reign for the rest of his life. And I think these questions point to the real significance of this whole episode. See, so look at the questions again in verse 23. Abner is really calling for more than a truce to this day's fighting. He's asking some profound questions about the future. And behind those questions is the really big question that the whole book is asking, which is the question about God's kingdom. Will God's kingdom come? Will God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? So look again at these questions. Verse 26 Abner called out to Joab across these two hills, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their brothers? Look at the questions with me. See if you can see the question behind the question. Question one, must the sword devour forever? It's a remarkable question for this hardened soldier to ask, isn't it? Is there another way for this world to be fixed other than continual violence and conflict? Will the story of God's world and the story of authority and power in God's world always be the story of the sword devouring? Question two, do you not know that the end will be bitter? Will God's promise of a good world full of blessing and joy and prosperity ever come about? That end that he promised back in Genesis 12 when he gave a promise to Abraham of a good world full of order and peace and blessing. Will that end ever come? 
or is it all going to end in bitterness? Question three, will these brothers, these descendants of Abraham, ever be united as one people of God? Three profound questions that this hardened soldier asks as the sun is setting on that hill. But can you see they're really the same question? Where will this end for the kingdom of God? And who will bring it to an end? Well, before we conclude, let me briefly show you the way 2 Samuel will answer that question. And it answers the question in two ways that at first look contradictory. First, it shows us that the answer will be David. Second, it shows us the answer cannot be David. Firstly, our passage here shows us that the answer will be David. Have a look at the summary sentence in verse 1. The war, sorry, 3 verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. You may have noticed as Emma read it that the passage makes no direct mention of God other than in Joab's oath in verse 27. But 3 verse 1 tells us, if we're clued up readers of 1 and 2 Samuel, that this is God's doing. That it's God who has put David on the throne. It's God who's anointed him. It is God who is behind all this, bringing about his long-promised kingdom. And it's very clear by the end of the chapter that David is not to blame for any of the bloodshed here. David is not grasping the kingdom himself. He will be the one God raises and puts on the throne. And yet Abner's question hangs over his entire life. So by the end of the book of 2 Samuel, we will know that although David is God's anointed, he is not God's anointed. With the apologies for spoiling the plot, many of the seeds for his eventual failure are sown here in this passage. Let me mention three of these seeds. First, the reason Abner is reluctant to kill Asahel back in verse 22 is that he knows that Joab is a man of vengeance. And he knows that from now on, his life will be under threat. Abner knows that if he kills Asahel, Joab will avenge his blood eventually. And this is what happens in the next chapter. This vengeance begins to spread throughout the whole kingdom, throughout the whole book. In chapter 3, we will see next week, sorry to spoil the plot for you, Joab murders Abner. In retribution for this, David then pulls a curse down on Joab, which rumbles on for the 40 years of David's reign. And it's only on David's deathbed, when he orders Solomon, his son, to finally kill Joab, in retribution for Abner's life here. All begins here in this chapter. And I'll put some references on the sheet so you can follow those up. In other words, the seeds sown here in this little chase scene actually disfigure David's life and rumble on even after his death. The second seed is that those words of Abner to Job about the soul devouring will be directed to Job once more in the book of 2 Samuel. The first time it was a plea to stop the killing. The second time in 1125, these same words will be used by David, but this time not to stop the killing, 
but to justify the killing of Uriah the Hittite, whose wife David wants for himself. It is famously David's lowest point. Now look at what he says in 1125. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. In other words, the very words that Abner uses to stop the killing, David will later use to justify the killing of Uriah the Hittite. Answering the question, will the sword devour forever? Yes, it will, as long as sinful human beings rule this world. The third seed is the sudden and surprising record of David's expanding family in 3, 2 to 5. And I've included this part of the passage here because this is an important thing for us to begin to see here. These marriages and births are stated as fact without comment from the narrator. We're never told directly in the Old Testament uh, that polygamy is wrong. We're just shown. At one level, this is all part of David's expanding power. His military potency matched by an expanding sexual potency that will become a vast dynasty of sons and daughters and wives and concubines. Six sons from six mothers raises the alarm bells in any Bible reader's mind. This growing sexual greed of David, this hunger for power, will form an example for his son Solomon which eventually will destroy the kingdom completely. But more immediately, those three sons whose names all begin with A, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, and it does get confusing, will all feature in the long story of David's reign that follows. It's as if we've been given here a kind of a, a, kind of a character cast of the book that we're about to read. And I'll give you a little taste of it, and it's not pretty. Amnon will rape his sister Tamar and be murdered by his brother Absalom in 2 Samuel 13. Absalom will not only kill his older brother, but will plot to revolt against his father in 2 Samuel 15 to 19. Adonijah will declare himself a rival to Solomon while his frail father is still dying in bed in 1 Kings 5. And so David's reign and his legacy is the story of the sword devouring. Why? Because he is not the one who believes Hannah's prophecy. He is not the one, ultimately, in whom Israel should place her hope. Hannah said, It is not by strength that one prevails. The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And it will turn out by the end that David only half believed this. And in conclusion, I simply want to ask, do you believe it? Do you believe Hannah's song? See, I believe, and I think I'll pre prove right as time goes on, or at least it's my opinion, that David is the best human leader the world has ever seen. I think I could probably make a good case for that, that David is the best human leader the world has ever seen. And yet the story that 2 Samuel tells of his reign is one of compromise, sin, and failure.
And therefore, one of the purposes of the book is to help us to recognize the limitations of all human leadership and to make sure we put our trust and hope in the right place. I don't know if it's David that writes, uh, wrote these words in Psalm 146. It may have been, it may not have been. But the psalmist in the book that David gives his name to says, do not trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. That is one of the lessons of this book. Remember that the problem is not leadership in itself. Leadership, rule, and authority, both in the world and in the church, are given to us by God for our good. None of us should be attracted to the Black Lives Matters movement's aim of removing authority from the world. It is never a good thing to be leaderless, to be authorityless. We are to thank God for, submit to, and pray for our leaders, as we have done this morning, however well or badly we think they are doing. Now, the problem is not with leadership. The problem is that human leaders are human. Some are better than others. As you look through history, you can see some leaders to admire and you can see some leaders to be terrified of. But no human leader is completely perfect in their motivation, completely selfless in their service, completely just in their decisions, or completely wise in their actions. And we need to remember this for the political leaders out there, for the bosses that we encounter in the workplace and in church too. If we don't remember that, we will be tempted to put our trust and our confidence in the wrong place. We will look for human leaders who will make us strong, will try and fix the world, the world's way, rather than God's way. And I think as Christians who are very much aware of the problems in our world, we will feel this temptation acutely both in the secular world of which we are citizens and the local church of which we are members. We will always be tempted to think that as long as we find the right leader with the right kind of strength, the right skills, the right personality, the right vision, if only we can find him or her, they will fix things. They will make things better. Now, please don't hear me saying that Christians should not be involved in politics. Please don't hear me say that we should not have the highest standard for leaders, whether in church or in the world. But what I am saying is that we will not find salvation in men. We must not make the classic mistake, which we see in the letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament, of thinking that it is by strength that we prevail. God says clearly, doesn't he? It is not by strength that we prevail. It is not by strength that we'll change the world. It's not by strength that we will build the church. And so what hope is there? Well, the hope is in the one man who believes Hannah's song and puts it into practice. There is a man who comes after David, who brings a rule of peace and righteousness after all. He is the one who will unite God's people, drive evil from the world once and for all, and open the way to the fulfillment of all the promises of God in the new creation. His name is Jesus. Like David's kingdom, 
His kingdom is the work of God, not men. Like David's kingdom, his kingdom rises in the midst of all the mess and pain of human history. But unlike David's kingdom, his kingdom comes not through the sword, but through his own death on the cross. And now advances through history and through the world, not through strength and might, but as the weakness and foolishness of the cross is proclaimed by ordinary people like you and I. It is his perfect rule, remember, that David himself looked forward to in his final words in 2 Samuel 23. When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Who is he? He is Jesus, the one who God has raised to his right hand, who will make this world healed, who will make this world great again. Let's make sure we are not putting our trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save, but in Jesus Christ, God's coming King. Let's pray now that we'll do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that from the mess of human sin and violence and division, you are quietly raising your kingdom, revealing that it's not by strength that one prevails, but that Jesus Christ alone has come, has died and risen, and will heal the world and unite your people. We pray that we will not trust in princes to fix the problems of the world, even as we work with all the ability you've given us to do what we can. But we will trust the word of the gospel to quietly advance your kingdom in all the mess and pain of human history as we hold out and trust in the foolishness of the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.